When people leave cults, they don't even know that they left a cult. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my shit shows. Today, we are diving deep into Scientology. Love me some Scientology. Love me some cults. Now, I consider myself to be pretty knowledgeable about Scientology, and I'm sure most of y'all have Everyone's heard the term, um, and I'm sure a lot of you guys know about it, but I want to provide a little background for those who might not know that much about it. So Scientology, the this Church of Scientology, is based off a set of beliefs and practices uh, developed by this guy na- named L. Ron Hubbard. So L. Ron Hubbard was this science fiction author who then wrote a book called Dianetics, which Wikipedia uh, defines it as a set of pseudo-scientific ideas and practices regarding the metaphysical relationship between the mind and body. So L. Ron Hubbard developed this set of beliefs, Dianetics, he publishes this book, and then through that comes Scientology. And so the end goal of this, of Scientology, is called going clear. So what the hell does that mean? Uh, It is defined as a condition in which a person is free of the unwanted emotions or painful trauma, which are not readily available to the awareness of present time. So essentially, uh, repressed trauma and memories, not just from this life, but also from all past lives. And so there's essentially this ladder that one has to climb up in order to go clear. So you could kind of compare it to, you know, working the 12 steps. Going clear, there is this very defined path on how you do that. And instead of taking steps, you are taking courses. Sounds all good and dandy, right, y'all? Except that they charge people hundreds of thousands of dollars to take these courses and go through thousands and thousands of hours of auditing sessions. So you could compare that to therapy, except the the person who is facilitating these auditing sessions is definitely not qualified to be doing therapy sessions. And they are also using uh, a machine called an e-meter while they're doing these auditing sessions, which is essentially a a pretend lie detector that doesn't really actually detect a damn thing. And then for the people who don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to give to Scientology, well, you can go and work for the organization and get basically paid nothing. And the, the most extreme version of this would be if joining the Sea Org So this is kind of like the top echelon, the most dedicated members of the church. And you are essentially a slave if you are in the Sea Org uh, and you're not allowed to have children. And they will even try to persuade uh, Sea Org members to get abortions. So then let's say you want to leave Scientology, but uh, the rest of your family doesn't. 
Well, the rest of your family isn't allowed to talk to you now that you've left. And for those who leave, who speak out about the organization, well, then you get labeled. It's called a suppressive person. And that is where they will literally try to do whatever they can to destroy your life through stalking and slandering. And they will actually make these disparaging websites of people. And today's guest is one of those people. I am joined by a suppressive person. If you go to the URL of his name, Scientology owns that shit, and it is just a uh, a, a hate page. So Aaron Smith-Levin, he was essentially born into Scientology. His mom joined when he was a little kid, and he spent 29 years in Scientology before leaving in 2014. And so he has a YouTube channel called Growing Up Scientology, where he just exposes what is actually going on. And he has a foundation called the Aftermath Foundation, where they help others to leave Scientology. So this is a long interview. But guys, I have been waiting my whole life to interview a Scientologist. So wow, this this really fed my soul. I love this shit and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. So let's get on with the show. But first, how about you damn the join Patreon, okay? This is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups for shit shows where we come to heal and have fun and make connection and laugh and you're missing out, okay? You're missing out if you're not a part of this. I'm serious. So how about you go damn the join Patreon, patreon.com slash adult child. Also, please give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at adult child pod. And last but not least, do not pass go, do not collect $200 unless you have given me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Okay, thanks. Mirrors on the ceiling, they pick champagne on ice, and she said... The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. All right, y'all. What is my pleasure to introduce Aaron Smith-Levin. He is the creator of the YouTube channel, Growing Up Scientology. Anything else you want me to say about you? That you, um, that you constructed this big wood, this beautiful background behind you. You're a craftsman. <laughs> 
That was a, out of an abundance of boredom. But um, the other thing I like to say is um, I'm the vice president of the Aftermath Foundation. We help people who are escaping from Scientology and Scientology's C organization. And uh, we help them get their lives, in many cases, restarted from scratch. And uh, it's been very successful over the last five years. So um, that's in the beginning of every one of my videos. I'm not sure how many people even noticed that, but I make it a point. My my little socials, when they zoom into the screen and then zoom out of the screen, it's uh, it's the Aftermath Foundation. Well, I think that what I talk about and what you talk about is very similar because like Scientology is just one big, huge dysfunctional abusive family. So it's dealing with the trauma, recovering from the trauma of that and the and the faulty programming and the brainwashing, which is very similar to, you know, growing up in a dysfunctional family. Yeah. Um, so I have to tell you a funny story. So one time I was um, in San Francisco, I was headed to a Billy Joel concert and with my friend and I was just telling my friend, I said, I always have the most interesting like Uber drivers. And so I get in the car and we're talking to the driver and I'm like, oh, do you do this full time? He's like, yeah, I'm retired. And, um, I was like, oh, from what? And he was like, oh, I was, um, I was a counselor and I was like, oh, mental health. And he was like, no Scientology. And I go, oh, you were an auditor. (laughs) And he was like, yeah. So that was exciting. How long ago was that? It was probably in like 2015. That is so weird. Um, because being an auditor isn't in Scientology something you retire from and mm. saying that you are retired, like that's not that's not even language that exists in Scientology. Scientologists don't retire. So do you think he got I, kicked I, out? Well, I'm I'm trying to I feel think. like he wouldn't have said it if he did. Well, right. Retired as a counselor. And also if he'd been a former Scientologist, he probably wouldn't even wanted to mention anything about having been exactly. In. Right. I don't think that he would have just been like pulling it out of his ass. No, no, no. I I think he clearly figured out this is the way normal people discuss things like this. But but the reason I think it's so strange is because it definitely sounds like he would have been a Scientologist in good standing. Mm -hmm. But like to be an auditor in Scientology, anyone can train as an auditor without being an auditor. Okay. And so to say I'm retired. I guess well, what, what the heck? What do they is, do? They just go to their deathbed? They're like they're on their deathbed using the e-meter on people? Well, no, here's what it here's what, what the <laughs> most likely scenario, here's what the most likely scenario is, is that he used to be a staff member. Okay. And as as a staff member, he was an auditor. And he's no longer on staff. You can leave staff after five years with no problem whatsoever. Except now you're driving Uber. Uber. <laughs> Why even bother mentioning that you used to be a Scientology auditor? It's such a strange thing. Well, I'm trying but, um, to but, remember what I the, said to him because I was like, I've seen, I was like, so what do you think about? Um, I, I said, so what do you think about all the backlash? And he goes, well, I just think it's those, I think that it's just, what did he say? Something like, I think it's just those people speaking their truth. But it's not representative of, of, he didn't, he, I don't even think he said that. I just said, that. interesting like this is interesting but you know what's funny is even though auditing costs like close to three thousand dollars an hour even at your lowest level scientology organization an auditor would 100 make more money driving uber yeah 
because they don't get paid jack shit. <laughs> so it's like, he, the re- again, the reason why it seems so weird to me is he's sort of inadvertently and unintentionally crapping on being an auditor by saying like, that he now drives Uber. Yeah, that's what I used to do, but well, now he, I drive Uber. Well, no, I mean, he, he was an older gentleman. I mean, it seemed like, you know, he just retired and now he's just doing... He was probably like in his 60s. I don't know. 60s. It that wasn't like, he, was like a, he wasn't like a th- it wasn't like he was like 25 and he was like, yeah, I retired from auditing and I'm just driving around. It seems like something he's genuinely proud of and wants to bring of course. it up. Of course he is. <laughs> wow. And San Francisco, because it's not like San Francisco has some big thriving Scientologist community. No, but they um, have that weird ass church. Yeah. I mean, it, it was yeah, I've never been to it physically but i know which one it's like the, yeah, the, it's weird like on tri- the corner the thin, exactly the cheese the cheese wedge yeah, it was one wedge of, of Scientology. <laughs> back, back in like 2000 i'm gonna get it wrong something like three or four or something miscavige started on this whole strategy of getting every scientology organization to buy a massive fifty thousand square foot new building for every existing scientology organization san francisco was one of the first ones that he actually took reserve scientology reserves to purchase and plunked down to purchase to sort of get the ball rolling and everything after that everyone had to scrounge up new money that's one of the buildings they used existing money for and um so that's why that building is there like the scientology organization in san francisco does not need anywhere near a building that size but it's like a landmark thriving um you know back in the day it would have been thriving Uh, That's how it even became a Scientology organization, because before that, it was called a mission, which is like a. And once it gets to a certain size, Scientology will be like, okay, you can become a real org. Um, But it's probably has not grown at all in the last 20 years, you know, Um, but that is really interesting. That is really interesting. Have you heard of Synanon? Of what? Synanon. Synanon, no. Yeah, you should listen to it. There's a do- there's a podcast series about it. It was it, I don't know. It kind of it kind of reminds me of Scientology a little bit, but it was like this guy. I mean, it's kind of he basically was like a part. I don't know. I'm I don't want to get into it, but well, Scientology has criminon and narconon, so synanon has to be a play on that, right? But I'm pretty sure the guy came from AA, and then he kind of created synanon as a way oh, to help out the junkies. Oh, I see. I see. I see. So it's really more of like it was more recovery based. Right. Okay. You know, what's funny is there's a narc anon. Yes. Which people get confused with narconon. Scientology's yes. narconon. Yeah. Can you explain what it is? Well, narconon is just a drug rehab program that yeah. uses sign that based on Scientology. Um, it's very expensive. Uh, it doesn't have any success rates better than anything else out there. Uh, I'm not sure it's any worse than anything else out there either, but it's the only one out there that uses Scientology. Um, What would be Scientology's take on addiction? Oh, um, it has to do with um, the reactive mind, which is Hubbard's version of like the Freudian subconscious unconscious. Mm -hmm. And that the reactive mind is composed of these mental recordings of pain and unconsciousness. And, um, and, I guess drugs, um, an altered state of mind through drugs would be somewhere on the spectrum of unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. So the theory is that it's not the physical drug you're addicted to. It's, um, or it's not the substance itself that's causing the addiction. 
It's something to do with the mental recordings of the times you have taken the drug that are like constantly being re-stimulated and whatnot. Everything in Scientology, everything in your life that's negative or bad in some way, shape or form will come down to the reactive mind as the underlying cause. So the, and there's very, and all types of Scientology auditing, even though there are several different kinds, all address the reactive mind in some way, shape or form. So the Narconon program is just the Scientology's like sauna program. They think you can, by taking vitamins and sitting in a sauna, sweat out the toxins, detoxify your body. And that gets rid of maybe the super. (laughs) (laughs) So that'll get rid of maybe the superficial um, substance that's kind of helping restimulate the mental pictures and stuff. And then there are a, a type of auditing called objectives where you're just like touching things in the environment and walking back and forth and picking things up and putting it down. And that's intended to like bring a person's attention, um, kind of suck it. Yeah. Bring it to the present, suck it out of the mental pictures where it's stuck and try to bring it to the physical present environment. And then there's these communication drills that uh, depending on how far down the Scientology rabbit hole someone's gone, you'll hear these drills of talking to ashtrays and to asking whether birds fly a thousand times and this just communication drills that sound very funny. Um, I want to talk to an ashtray. Did they talk back? You talk and you scream at the ashtray. Oh, that's not very nice. What did it ever do to you? Uh, and um, Why so an that's ashtray? the knocking on Would you have to be like a smoker to do that? No, I mean, it could be anything. It's just, okay. uh, Ashtray just is good for the story. Uh, you can find an ashtray anywhere. So, not anymore. Uh, it has to be an ashtray with four corners. Cannot be a square. <laughs> Why? Uh, because part of the drill is saying, "Are you a corner? Are you a corner? Are you a corner?" It's it's just part of the drill. So it has to be a four cornered ashtray. Um. So I got sent to a therapeutic boarding school when I was uh, fifteen, and there was definitely some Scientology shit there too. So similar, like we had what was called brother's keeper, which like you had to, you know, if you didn't, if you knew somebody had done something, if you didn't rat them out, you would get in just as much trouble as if you had done it yourself. And they would sit people in a room and they would like put a piece of paper in front of you. And so there was like ethics for the rules. So it was like no lying, cheating, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, sex, and then brother's keeper. And then they also had another thing called spirit of the law, which is like, if you had made a plan to break an ethic, but you just like somehow didn't go through with it. Like you still would get into trouble as if you had actually done it. <laughs> and so they would put you in a room and they would brainwash like similar to Scientology. Like they would brainwash people. So like you couldn't get like everyone would just rat each other at. So they would like sit you in a room and like they would have a piece of paper in front of you and you would have to circle the ethics that you did. And then like who, what, where, why. And so you'd write down like I smoked a cigarette and then they'd come in and they'd look at it. And they wouldn't even know if you had done anything else, but they would make it seem like they knew that you had done something else. So they just go, keep thinking. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, but doesn't Brothers Keeper have like a, a religious connotation? Probably. It but wasn't, it wasn't a religious thing? No. no. Mm, yeah. okay. It was called the Hyde School. It was in mm. Maine. And then when you would get into trouble, they would put you on this thing called 2-4, where you had to like do yard work all day. Like you had to sit alone at meals. And so one time they put the whole school on two four because they found out these kids were like 
remember that, that website Silk Road, like where you could buy the drugs and stuff. Like, I think that this kid had bought, bought all these like prescription pills from like India or whatever. And I would say only like half of the students like knew about it. I didn't. And so then they just decided to put the whole school on two, four, there was about 200 of us. And so what our 5.30 a.m. workout consisted of was doing 25 jumping jacks, but we had to do them like all in sync. And so then there was like, it took us over an hour because there was always that fucking kid like right on the 25th one who would like flail his arms at the end and we'd have to start over. Oh, that's funny. What did 2-4 stand for? I don't know. I don't know. But it was, yeah. Fuck that school. Yes, Scientology had its own version of those schools and they were Uh so horrible Mm. and the kids got in so much trouble and um it created like the abuses that ended up occurring there were so much worse than anything these kids were sent there for in the first place because realize these are scientology families sending the kids to these schools so their idea of what's horrible behavior yeah it's very um, is like nothing yeah i mean you have scientology families i'm saying this without knowing how it compares to anything else, really, who their kid will just like be caught smoking weed and they'll send them to rehab. I don't know if that's normal, but I'm like, rehab is for addicts. Yeah. Not someone who just gets caught. You got caught. You're not addicted to anything. You just got caught breaking the rules and they send you to fucking rehab. Doesn't make any sense at all. And I mean, it it was similar. It was similar for um, for these boarding schools. It was like the Mace Kingsley school and the ranch school. Kids would get sent there for nothing. And then they'd essentially become little felons mm-hmm. while they were there, mm-hmm. you know? So any of those schools, to the best of my knowledge, are shut down. But I just spoke to someone today whose mom is still like a true believing Scientologist, right? And she said, I'm having trouble with my teenager. And I spoke to my mom and she goes, oh, send him to the, send him to the ranch school in New Mexico. And I was like, I thought that school was shut down. And she said, I think it was. That's just how out of touch some of these Scientology people are. They don't even know the school was shut down. Because that would be like bad news. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to spread bad news around. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's weird. But no, those schools are horrible. So, but you were sent to this particular school, but it wasn't religious. No. Um, any particular reason it was that school? Yeah, because it was like a school for bad kids. But like, as opposed to some other one, was it just like the closest one? No, um, I was in an outpatient rehab and the, and the counselor there recommended this school. Okay. So some relationship there. Mm-hmm. So I just rewatched your episode on Leah's show. I watched it when it first came out. So it was good to rewatch it. Um, so I think it's really interesting when you talk about your mother joining and her desire to feel connected and a part of something and this desire to feel connected to some sort of a, a greater purpose. So was your dad ever in your life when you were younger? Um. No. I mean, we, we knew him, we would visit him every summer, but he was Uh, not, he wasn't in the area. Right. He was, he, he, he was in Minnesota. We were in South Jersey and the suburbs of Philly. And it's just you and your brother, your twin brother. Do you have any other siblings? It was me, my twin brother, and then uh, a younger brother. And then my mom got married. I had a stepbrother and a stepsister. Okay. And so, um, the only one of all of those who's still in Scientology is my younger brother. He's six years younger than me. He actually just lives like a mile away from me. I haven't seen him in years. Neither has your mother. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so how did your mom find out about Scientology? 
through a friend of hers who was about the same age as she was uh-huh. uh, named Cheryl. Um, they, uh, you know, they both had kids really young. So like my mom, even after like my mom's almost exactly 20 years older than me. Wow. She, she was a baby. Yeah. And, and her friend Cheryl's about the same age as her, her and her friend Cheryl's the one that got her into Scientology. I don't, I don't know how Cheryl got into Scientology. So, and man, I was four. So she, mm-hmm. they 24 years old. My mom would have been when she got into Scientology and she pretty much joined staff right away. You know, like there's pretty much three different levels of involvement in Scientology. There's public, there's staff and there's Sea Org. Mm-hmm. So she really spent almost no time as a public. She joined staff right away. And where, where, how large was the, con- do you call it a congregation? Like how large was the organization in Philly at that time? So I would say there's probably never been more than like a hundred to maybe 150 active Scientologists. In Philly. Wow. Yeah. And by the way, that's the Oregon Philadelphia is the only org in all of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Wow. So it's not even just Philly. Like Scientology is fucking small. There's only about 30,000 Scientologists in the entire world. Well, how many were there like when your mom joined? Because it was probably a lot bigger then or? So there at that time in the entire world, there was likely a hundred thousand Scientologists. Okay. And what would you say now? 30. 30. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, some of my earliest memories are being in the Scientology Oregon Philly, which is right downtown on, on 13th and race street. Okay. Um, it's been in that same building since the eighties. That just shows you how Scientology hasn't grown. It's the only fucking org in all of the tri-state area. And I, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, and it's been in the same small building for over 40 years. <laughs> um, and so some of my earliest memories are being in the nursery of that org. Oh, we would just get up to so much no good. Oh, we were such bad news. Not just us, but all the, all the kids that were there. We had no business being there. What was and, your and mom a, doing Like when she, she was joined tra- staff? She was training to be an auditor, an auditor, and then a course supervisor, which is just someone who trains auditors. And then there's another position called a cramming officer, which is someone who corrects auditors uh, when they make mistakes in an auditing session. Uh, And there was even a whole time when she came down here to Clearwater, Florida, where I live now, uh, to train for at least six months straight when we were still, you know, what, five, six years old. And so- Who did she leave you with? The people at the church? Her husband at that time. I'm trying to- Yeah, yeah, her husband- Oh, so we would have been six, six or seven at that time. Cause that means my little brother would have already been born. That's right. That's what it was. And he's six years younger than, than I am. So, um, yeah, some of my earliest memories are in a Scientology organization and we were probably eight, nine, 10 years old when we started doing, uh, courses ourselves. And That's- then we were 12 years old when we were taken out of school full-time to start working for Scientology. So do you remember, <sighs> How was it explained to you? Like when you're little, 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 like, did you, did your, was it you kind of piecing things together or was there ever a moment where your mom was like, Hey, here's the deal. So the best way to answer this question is that, um, Scientology does not consider itself to be a belief system. Mm-hmm. So at that young age, there really was no need to have a conversation about what do Scientologists believe? Because when you go into a Scientology organization, you know, the, the, the most obvious thing going on is the course room. 
And the course room is just where people are sitting down and studying courses. And there are courses that kids can do. Um, you know, the courses, how to study, how, how to keep, even though know, we're going to take you out of school, how to study for when you don't go to school and we make right. you work full time at 12 years old. Right. In other words, how to study Scientology. <laughs> and so I can remember, you know, being about seven or eight years old when we did the, uh, the children's success through communication course. And there's probably no valuable. It's probably sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, uh, the communication drills at the lowest introductory levels of Scientology is one of the things that gets people hooked into Scientology and wanting to find out what else there is. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'm telling the story that way though, because there's no, even, even just sitting there and doing the communication course, there's no requirement that someone comes and explains to you what it is you're supposed to believe. Cause there's no belief. It's just a fucking communication drills. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's really how Scientology prefers to talk about itself and market itself tools, that you can apply to improve conditions and succeed in life. When you talk about Scientology the way Scientologists like to talk about it, it doesn't sound like a religion at all. Mm -hmm. It barely even sounds like a philosophy. Uh, and if you didn't have to talk about Scientology that way in order to get tax exempt status, Scientologists would really rather not talk about Scientology that way. Mm -hmm. They don't look very highly upon religion or faith or belief. They don't believe in a heaven or a hell. They don't believe um, in a supreme being. So, mm -hmm. and Scientology doesn't like being compared to other things either. It doesn't like being compared to psychotherapy, psychiatry, or any other religions, because it looks down on all these things. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, your, your question was like, how did my mom ever explain any of it to me? Or what did she, she say it was like, this is just our group. Like, yeah, that's a really good. I remember sitting in third grade and we're all sitting in a circle and going around trying, and we have to tell the class, like what our mom does. Or what your parents do. And I remember being like, oh, fuck. I'm like, oh, fuck. I hate this. I remember this is one thing that just stands out of my mind is um, hating the fact that my mom was involved in this thing that I either didn't know how to explain or didn't want to have to explain or whatever. Like, oh, the, my mom works at the Dianetics in the Scientology Center. <laughs> and I don't remember knowing enough at that time to be able to explain it. But I remember knowing enough that I was embarrassed to have to say it. Like, <laughs> yeah. it. Isn't that interesting? I remember being embarrassed that I had to say this, mm. but I don't remember what I knew about it at the time, mm. but it was definitely this negative presence in my mind, even though as an individual, I, I remember not having a problem with it. What I had a problem was, was other people knowing about it. To be honest, that's how I felt about Scientology the entire time that I was in it. The yeah. But I time. wonder what you were picking up on. Cause I know because <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? Like, cause clearly yeah. You were picking up on something if you were attaching a shame element to it from the get-go. Exactly. It's very interesting. What about what maybe it like with your mother? Like I'm wondering if if she wouldn't want to tell other people that weren't part of it, or you know what I mean? Like I wonder. Oh no, no, she was that. very enthusiastic no, about could, okay. spreading the like, word. Rah, rah. Yeah. She was like out on the street doing personality tests. Do they still do that? Oh yeah. I really want one. Some of the questions <laughs> are weird as shit. I've looked them up before. You can take one online. Just I've give them a fake name. I've never seen it. Like I've always wanted to like come across like uh like people on the street and ask me to take it. So well, on the street, what they're gonna do? Well, because it's a two hundred question test, they can't have you taken it there on the street. But they're they're gonna ask you to go into the org and take it. So when you run into them on the street, they're usually trying to give you a stress test using the e meter, and that's really just a tool to convince you to buy Dianetics. Mm -hmm. But to take the personality test, you actually have to go into the org. 
or you can do it through the website actually. For free? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for free. Yeah, yeah, taking the test is ne there's never a charge for that. So, but is is the e-meter discussed in Dianetics? No, no, because the e the e-meter did not exist when Dianetics was written. And did L. Ron Hubbard develop the e-meter himself? No, no, it was made by a guy named Volney Matheson. Oh, of course. That all whatever happened to him? <laughs> well, there was some there was some relationship that he had with Hubbard and either I, I have to recall either Volney was like an early Dianeticist and he made this thing for Hubbard or Hubbard specifically asked him to. Um, but there was some relationship there. I think Volney Matheson was involved in Dianetics in the early days and that um, and this uh, he created this machine and uh yeah, that machine is now used in almost all Scientology auditing. Except for when they do the ashtrays. Yes, correct. So, but that's the early level of auditing. So, so the e-meter is used in what they call subjective auditing, which means it involves a lot of thinking yeah. and mental work, mm -hmm. like re recalls of early life and past life. Mm -hmm. Objective auditing is you don't have to recall shit. Just touch that table and let go of that table. <laughs> I'm going to call so this episode the four-cornered ashtray. <laughs> So Mark Headley is a former uh, Sea Org member who tells a story of being audited by Tom Cruise at Scientology's international base. And he talks about doing the ashtray auditing. Now, okay. now look, the, uh, the ashtray comes into play both in objective auditing, but also in some of Scientology's communication drills. So depending on what story you're hearing, you might hear the ashtray come up and um, sometimes it has to do with auditing and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just a communication drill. Do they like include an ashtray in like merch? Like, do they have like four cornered ashtray sweatshirts? Like, can we? No, get but they going? really should. They really yeah, should the have fuck? some they're, special. I mean, if they're struggling ashtrays. for money, I mean, I buy that shit. Are you allowed to smoke? Um. Oh, Scientologists smoke like chimneys. At least because, they got that for them. Yeah, because L. Ron Hubbard smoked like a chimney, so there's no. There's no one in Scientology who's ever going to tell you smoking causes cancer because they think all disease actually has a mental and a spiritual source. Mm -hmm. And they go, well, it, smoking couldn't cause cancer or L. Ron Hubbard wouldn't have smoked. And I mean, kids smoke. For some reason, I never got into it. I think it's because I was always, I was a long distance runner. So I, smoking just never made any sense for me. I never wanted to do it. I smoked cigars. I've never smoked a cigarette. Um, but in fact, and I think this might've been tongue in cheek, but you'll hear it differently from different people. L. Ron Hubbard says smoking doesn't cause cancer. Not smoking enough causes cancer. <laughs> mm, I agree. So I say in my very first episode, so I'm 5'11 and I was this height at 12 and I say, thank God I started smoking at 12 or I would have been like seven foot one. <laughs> Whoever says it's not a good thing is a fucking liar. <laughs> um, so then, Okay. So then at what age did you guys move down to Clearwater when you were nine? No, no. So um, we moved down to Clearwater when I, so no, I was around seven or eight, nine when my mom came down here for like six months, but we were yeah. still okay. in Philly or South Jersey. And so I was 13 years old when we came down, when we literally moved, we moved here and we were here did for you, like hold on. Years. Did you, did you like, aside from that, like, did you have a normal, like, did you play sports? Like, did you have friends? Did you go to birthday parties? Like, or we right pretty isolated up and, right up until the day we moved to Clearwater. I had a relatively normal upbringing. Okay. From the day we moved to Clearwater on, it was nothing but 
full-time Scientology, 365, no days off, no vacations, no holidays, no nothing. So when you reflect back on that time though, before you left, and I'm just thinking too, with you, um, feeling like not wanting to share about being a part of it. I mean, and I'm sure you've probably had time to process and stuff, but like, what was, what was the atmosphere in your home? I mean, the atmosphere in at home had more to do with the tumultuous nature of my mom and her relationships and not so much to do with Scientology at yeah, all. Yeah, but it's all connected, right? Because like probably what drew her to be a part of this is probably what drew her to want to be in toxic relationships, right? It and that's stands also to where reason. The shame, and that, that's also where the shame piece comes in too, because it couldn't even, it doesn't even necessarily have to be scientology related but if you're growing up in a culture where that's getting you know yeah it was more or less a revolving door of boyfriends and husbands is what i recall mm -hmm. um it was very very again sometimes i, I question whether i should have um, had your mom on. i should have done this with you and your mom that would oh she would never that. agree okay she's okay. one of these people who still believes in scientology and practices it even though she's out of it okay good to know yeah um and I don't have a ton of great memories of my childhood. I mean, I can, I can easily reflect back and think of, on good times. Like, it's not like, you know, we weren't abused or beaten as kids or whatever. I mean, just beyond normal spankings, but it's not like, you, you know, in, in many cases, uh, in some ways, I even find it hard to explain why I would say that. And yet it is true for me. I don't have a lot of fantastic memories of, of childhood. I remember a lot of anxiety, a lot of nervousness, a lot of, you know, uh, uncertainty. And yet kids are at the same time, extremely resilient. Mm -hmm. And um, so. In what do you know about her upbringing? I don't think it was a good situation. Mm -hmm. Like uh, she was raised in a very religious household, but very, her parents were very abusive. Mm -hmm. um, she and her two brothers. Um, but again, she also like, I honestly, I never heard a, a lot about her upbringing. Um, I just know that she left home at, at 19 or 20 or whatever with never went back. two brand new kids um, and mm -hmm. never, yeah, never went back. Uh, and when she did, it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and also the relationship between her and her brothers and her brothers and their parents was all just horrible. You know, I, I don't mean horrible all the time or even particularly childhood, but I, I mean, like, even as adults, my two uncles haven't spoken to each other in decades. Why? I have no idea, but it's got to be some reflection on whatever happened prior. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just not a great family situation. Uh, now, my mom would disagree with that completely, but of course she was. <laughs> um, so, but the, but the, I mean, in some ways I say it's, it was relatively normal, but I don't even know what I'm comparing it to. Well, that's just it. I mean, that's the whole thing is like, Right. We don't we all think that our fucked up childhoods were normal because that's all we know. Yeah. All I know is that my three daughters experience is exponentially different and better than mine was. That's all I know. <laughs> all that matters. Exactly. So when was so you go down there and then when was the conversation of like, hey, you're not going to go to school anymore? Oh, no, that was um, that wasn't even a that conversation wasn't required. We already knew we weren't going to school. Uh, in fact, we sort of, by the time we came down here to Clearwater, we pretty much embraced the, 
uh, this is what we want to do. So we went to public school up until the sixth grade. And then for the entirety of seventh grade, we switched to homeschool. So me, my twin brother, my stepbrother, my stepsister, and two of my mom's friends' kids. So that's six of us. All did homeschool in our house during you did like it and ran it. Your parents, my mom, my mom, and and so we would do that until like three o'clock in the afternoon, four o'clock in the afternoon. Then we would go downtown to Philly to work at the org, or in this case, study until ten o'clock at night. <laughs> we <It's>, were twelve. <laughs> it's like you grew up in China. That's like literally what they do. They like go to school all day and they have to go home and study for the big test they have to take. So yeah. So no childhood. Yeah. So, um, and so the, the whole, we, so we were on, we would did. So, okay. <laughs> Seventh grade was homeschool during the day, working at the org at night. And again, by working, it's really just studying. And then what are you that studying, was though? Like Scientology other... courses, just Scientology courses. Okay, but after we get through communication, I mean, what else do we have? So when you're a kid. Like, what are the, the courses that a kid takes? There are like prerequisite courses to becoming an auditor, to train as an auditor, because that's what we were going to do is train as an auditor. So there's kids study courses, but then there's the professional study course. And that actually is a really long course, like hundreds of hours. And, and then, cause we had joined staff. So there's a whole bunch of staff training courses where you're just learning about the organization. This is more just the administrative side, the hierarchical structure. You're learning about the org board. You're learning, you're reading LRH's policies on how to manage various aspects of Scientology organizations. So there was two very long administrative courses we were studying, one very long like professional study course, and then sort of an introductory auditors course that was also pretty meaty. And we had to finish these courses in order to qualify to come down to Clearwater and study. And you were like 13. 12, 12 and 13. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, what took you so long? I mean, God. <laughs> <laughs> Slow learner, huh? <laughs> and these are courses that are not easy for adults. I mean, honestly. So by the time we finished, and all of this was being done specifically so that we could qualify to come down to Clearwater and study full time. So by the but time we come down there to study other than being an auditor, like, would there be like other tracks for people? Uh, the main, there, there's like a hundred, there's hundreds of different things you could do in Scientology as far as training courses, but what you're really supposed to be doing, everything is supposed to really supposed to be gearing towards doing auditor training because it's almost like all those other silly side courses that you can do. All they are is taking some piece out of the auditor training materials and putting them into this nice, quick, easy to do course so that you can have someone do it without having to do the prerequisite, all the prerequisite courses to auditor training. So like mainline Scientology is, the auditor training courses. Everything else is just kind of a cute distraction. That yeah. just, do you know yeah. what I mean? But so, so like, but would everybody, everyone, like, let's say you're in the public and you're not going to be, because you said anybody can get trained to be an auditor. The required courses that you take as you like move up in the levels, like, let's say you're not going to become a, an auditor, but everyone is getting trained on how to audit, though. That's right. Okay. That's right. Because they say, even if you're not going to become an auditor, Getting auditor training 
you're training for life. This is training on how to handle life and auditors make the best executives. That's what they say. So they say, even if you're just an administrator, even if you're just an entrepreneur, you run your own business, you need to know how to handle people. And that's what auditor training gives you. That's how they would sell it to you. So literally, even if you have no slightest interest in being an auditor, not even the slightest, you still as a Scientologist are encouraged to do auditor training. Uh, even if you're just a stay-at-home mom, they would still be, yes, but learning, because you're not just learning how to audit, you're learning about people and the reactive mind and life and, and, and what you learn as an auditor impacts everything you could ever do, even if it's sales or whatever. And I so, guess that's um, just a way of like just um, getting people really hooked in and like brainwashed into the process, I guess, is by like really honing in on that and getting people to like really buy in on what they're doing. Yeah. But I mean, like, just realize that's what Scientology is. So what yeah. you have today stems from how it started. Well, how did it start? L. Ron Hubbard wrote Dianetics and then spent the next two or three years training people on how to audit Dianetics and doing big Dianetics seminars. But then he just created new auditing procedures and processes, and then it grew into Scientology auditing. So Hubbard was basically just always training auditors. Because that's how he makes money is through auditing. Well, yeah. And, and just that's what Scientology was. Mm -hmm. Scientology was auditing. Well, mm -hmm. who, who delivers auditing? Auditors. So it was auditors and auditing. And that's what Scientology was. And any other little foo-foo courses that exist today, like how to properly manage your time or how to effectively raise a family. These are just cute little courses that have been created, but pulled out of what was auditor training materials. And this is where Hubbard delivered thousands and thousands of audio lectures because mm -hmm. he's talking to auditor trainees. Mm -hmm. So now, but when we were here uh, coming down here to Clearwater to study full time, we were coming specifically to train as auditors and everyone who was coming to flag, to Clearwater, that's what they were coming for as well. To either train as auditors or to train as a course supervisor who's the one that trains auditors. And so here's the other thing, not to jump subjects because this just moves the ball a little bit here is, so get this, we were 13 years old, we were training to be a professional auditor. Well, what the fuck does a professional auditor do? <laughs> Talk well, to it's people about their deep emotional issues. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And we weren't the youngest people on the fucking training program. I mean, we got, I remember when I, when we got here, there was already a 12 year old girl who was already a class four auditor. Mm -hmm. I mean, in every auditing session, you are potentially talking to someone about uh, their sex life, uh, you know, masturbation, physical, uh, 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 I mean, auditing sessions, depending on what kind of auditing you're doing are dealing with whatever the person considers to be most traumatic to them. Mm -hmm. And you're having children being the one to guide these auditing sessions, even to this day, that is considered good in Scientology to have children train as, as auditors. Well, that specifically right there is trauma because that's, um, that's parentification, right? Like it's forcing kids to grow up too fast and like skipping several stages of very important development. Yes, there are some of the abusive practices of Scientology that they have kind of pulled back on just because of all the bad press and legal problems it's created. This is not one of them. There's never been any lawsuits or anything or criminal actions brought on this subject of having children training as auditors. And uh, I can't tell you why. I don't know why it's never come up.
Uh, but it's arguably one of the most disturbing parts of Scientology. I usually say the destruction of families. Destruction of families is what I find most objectionable about Scientology. Uh, but this thing about children and, and auditor training, and even the process of auditor training has some, you know, some of the communication drills are, you know, specifically designed to get the person to a point where they won't react to, uh, you know, stimulus. And I bet you found this to be exciting because the way that I can relate it to my life is like my, mo my mother was an alcoholic. And when my dad was out of town, you know, I kind of stepped in as the caretaker and the way that I, I and I found it all like my fear came through excitement. Right. So I like, kind of got like this, like adrenaline rush from it. And I bet as a kid with you doing that, it's like you feel like big and important and it, it's exciting, right? Like you're getting to do this like grown up thing. Oh, 100%, 100%. There were positive aspects to it that I, you know, carry over to this day. Um, even something as small as, even something as small as not having the idea that you can only accomplish something up here if you've like, you know, uh, how do I want to describe this? As a 15-year-old child, I was running a course room training auditors with adults who were doctors, lawyers, scientists. At 15? And at 15 years old. And there was no part of me that felt inadequate compared to these people. In fact, I felt senior to them. And, <laughs> and so you might call that, let's just call that a false confidence. False confidence has served me very well in life. <laughs> I mean, there's something to be said for not being insecure. Oh <laughs> yeah. Whether whether it's deserved or not, and that brings a whole other interesting conversation of what the hell does deserved even mean? So having a certain level um, or a certain perception and view of myself at that young age has served me well in many ways, but having um, no normal childhood experience or frame of reference has also been uh, destructive in many ways. And not just in the sense of, oh, I didn't get to play as many sports as I wanted. I mean, not having anyone, you know, you know, because Scientology doesn't view that there really is such a thing as children. As a kid, yeah. They were all 65, you know, 65 trillion year, trillion year yeah. old beings. And mm -hmm. you know, if, you're, if you're 13 years old, then that means... 14 years ago, you were a full grown adult with a full worldly experience. Never mind the 60 trillion years before that. So you don't get treated as a kid. And in many respects, that is empowering. Nobody wants to be treated as less than just because they're a young age. They can't do anything about that. But at the same time, there's no one looking out for you. And there's no idea that you have any special needs or interests as a child other than what an adult would. Mm -hmm. And that is mm. very problematic. Mm. There's no one looking out for you and your interests because you're just as capable and aware as everyone else is. So, you know what I mean? Um, so then you start working, like when do you start like working full time? Okay. Yeah. So the full-time study was from 13 years old to 15 years old. So I was 15 years old in May, 1996, when I went back to Philadelphia to start working full-time. Full-time means nine o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And also I'm living in South Jersey. So I'm staying, my mom's still in Clearwater. I go back to Clearwater by myself. Was I'm she sorry, also I go back to, an auditor? Back to 
Yeah, but she had a much longer. So yeah, even though we went yeah. down there for auditor training, we switched to course uh -huh. supervisor training. Yeah. Okay. So I went back to Philadelphia with a couple other people my same age. <laughs> oh, remember, I said um, my stepsister and one of my um, the other kids we were doing homeschool with. Everyone else had washed out of the training program except for the three of us. So um, we go back to Philly. Uh, and I'm living in South Jersey. So I, as a 15-year-old, I am by myself getting up in the morning, taking a bus to downtown Philly so I can be there at 9 o'clock in the morning to, to do roll call. I'm working until 10 o'clock at night. And then I'm taking the bus back to South Jersey uh, to rinse and repeat. And you have to understand, I'm saying this as if it's bad because it is bad, but I didn't think it was. At yeah, the time. I know. I know. I know. But yeah. <laughs> you're not any different, you know? Right. And so that went on for like three years until for a variety of reasons, I just had enough. I mean, did um, you ever like go out to dinner? Like, was there ever like anything mm -hmm. like, like literally nothing ever? No, like never. Well, I mean, go out to dinner. You only have like 25 minutes for dinner. So, I mean, yeah, you can so go like, down the street and get it. You can go down the street and get a cheesesteak and bring it back real quick. But, you know, you only have about 25, 30 minutes for lunch, 25, 30 minutes for dinner. It's all about the org. It's what all about, about working, working, working. I mean, holidays aren't it's it's not like the JWs or something where you're not allowed to celebrate holidays. Holidays. But just like, did you get like, did you have get holidays off? I mean, like. I, I, I mean, maybe like an extra long dinner on Thanksgiving or something like holidays are, aren't considered important. Only Scientology is considered important. Mm -hmm. So like, I mean, Christmas, maybe you get Christmas day off, but only if someone's there to cover, cover the course room because the course room doesn't close on Christmas. So, you know, of, of everyone working in the course room, you'd basically go, okay, who's going to come in and someone will be like, Oh, I don't care. I'll work on Christmas. Um, and I'm trying to remember like, cause remember it's not like we had family. It's not like we had family there. You know, my mom was in Florida. My dad's in Minnesota. I mean, what's Christmas is really just a big dinner is really all that is. Um, so you, so that's when we I started working full time at the age of 15. So from 15 to 18, from 15 to 18 years old, I did nothing but work at for Scientology 365 days a year. What were you paid? Lucky if you're getting 200 bucks a week. How, how is your mother, though, able to pay for rent and stuff? Well, she, my mother wasn't even there. She wasn't. Okay. So my dad was still paying child support. And so, and whatever that was, whether it was 250 a month or 500 a month, I don't even particularly remember. But I also didn't get the check. It just went right to Cheryl. So I'm 15 years old. I'm also paying rent. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't much rent, right? So, um, and uh, so, yeah. I stayed with Cheryl in South Jersey, Washington Township in Sewell, New Jersey um, for those three years, uh, but really didn't spend much time there because I was just always working at the org anyway. It was really Where just was a place your brother? to stay. Was he with you? So in the beginning, he was at Cheryl's house with me. Then he moved out and found a place downtown. You're but then he wasn't I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. But then he wasn't working at the org during that time. So... Uh, yeah, so he was with me at Cheryl's for a while, but then he moved downtown. And then I stayed with Cheryl until I was like, all right, I've had enough of this. I'm moving to LA. And then my brother and I moved to LA for two years. We basically had pretty much nothing uh, to do with Scientology for two years. Oh, really? Yeah. And then I went back and he stayed out. What prompted that, though? What prompted me going back? No, 
the break for two years? Um, things at the org were just getting really screwed up. Like the one of the kids that we were doing homeschool with, like, uh, and then he came to flag and we all trained together and then we went back. His mom became the head of the org. And then his father became like the co-head of the org. And they, they were just horrible, horrible people. Bonnie and Attilio DiMartino. He's dead, thankfully. She's alive and here in clear water. She's still a horrible piece of shit to this day. Um, and they basically destroyed the org through favoritism and nepotism. And they were trying to use it to make money on the side. I was still a true believing, dedicated staff member. And they were just fucking everything up. And then trying to take out everyone who tried to stop them from what they were doing. I just basically was like, I got better shit to do with my life than fight these fucking assholes all day. I was just like, I'm fed up with it. And um, did you view it though? Like as um, a prop, like culty at that point? Nope. I actually still consider myself a Scientologist. I just was done wasting. I was done just done wasting my time in Philly with these fucking assholes. And so, um, and so, I mean, so I spent almost two years in Hollywood, just doing our own thing. No connection to Scientology or Scientologists. Um, but I still considered myself a Scientologist and I'd get really upset if people start talk shit about Scientology. <laughs> um, and so and then you went back to work for them. And what were you doing this time? I went back to Philadelphia and finished the two years I had left on my contract doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And so was it at that point that your brother, you cut con- contact with your brother or was it after that? Like when it was you- around, it was shortly after that. It was shortly after that. And so what specifically happened though for him to um for him to like become a suppressive as far as so the sequence of events would have been he stayed in LA, um, got pretty heavy into drugs and alcohol, definitely formed dependency problems, uh, crashed a car driving drunk, spent the night in jail, um, was sentenced probably to some program that involved um, seeing a psychiatrist or psychologist, ended up on some, uh, not Prozac, but whatever was big at that time other than Prozac. Um, And then, so at this time, uh, he basically went off to live with my dad. And at this time, my dad wasn't in Minnesota anymore. Um, He was in Zuni, New Mexico. His wife was a doctor. Um, wife is a doctor and she was doing like a residency or whatever on the Zuni, the reservation in Zuni, New Mexico. So my brother was getting into all this trouble in California. My dad's like, just come and live with me. So he went there, eventually started going to school, um, was going to college, was in UNM. And then he started doing um, some court, um, some classes where he started writing papers about Scientology. And then he told me about that. And then I reported him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because what is that exactly. policy called? Like similar to the brother's keeper thing at my high school, the boarding school. What is that called where you have to write them up? There's many policies about it. I mean, even just the policy on writing knowledge reports lays out, just like you said earlier, that if you if it's found, if something comes to light and it was found that you knew about it and had failed to report it, you get the same penalties as uh, the person who's done whatever it is. Uh, but really at that point, you know, I was a true believer. So it wasn't even about, oh, the policy says you have to do X, Y, and Z. It was like, you know, if someone's committing suppressive acts and they are a suppressive person. And at that point, you know, in real world terms, the relationship between he and I and he and my mom had deteriorated to the point where, you know, it was a very antagonistic relationship. He was against 
Scientology. He was against my mom. He was against uh, me by extension, not quite so much me, but like there just was nothing there to save at that time in the way we were living. Right. Especially as a, like uh, as a Scientologist, I'm working full time for them and, and he's out here actively working against the organization. So it's, um, it's like, so your mom wrote him up too, right? It's, yeah. Cause there was some conversation that he had with her as well. So it's like, so it's interesting too, because especially in your case, as to where you were raised in it, there's no semblance of family, right? Like with what you experienced, like, you know, you didn't even live with your mom a lot of the time. There was no sort of like idea to you of family, whereas it would be different if like somebody joined, you know, had like a normal upbringing and then joins Scientology, like in adulthood. But yeah. for you, like that, that family piece, like what it means to have family and what those relationships mean, that was not ingrained in you because you were like the family unit is not of any importance. Exactly. It's, it's one of really, again, I mean, I said it before that the destruction of families is what I find most objectionable about Scientology, but there really is a complete and utter deprioritization of the family unit, uh, any relationships and, you know, familial relationships are the strongest of them. So they're right there at the top to be deprioritized. I mean, they literally based on their belief of past lives and everything, Think there's really, you really don't, you are not your body. You're a spiritual being. So you don't have a mother or a father. Your body has a biological source. You have no special connection to the being that is in your mother's body. Zero. Except maybe you were friends in a past life. Do you see? So you have, there's nothing special about that relationship in any way, shape or form. Was That's that, what Scientology Was that says. always kind of the case or was that something like as time went on, that kind of got stronger? As time went on. Because the more you learn about Scientology, the more it just becomes, oh, of course. Oh, of course. Like, it's not like our mom ever sat us down and said, we have no special relationship. Like, that, that's not a conversation that ever occurred or even would have. Because I'm sure my mom would be like, oh, that's not true. It's a special relationship. And you go, well, Scientology says that it's not. And you disconnected from your son without a whole lot of brouhaha about it. And again, she justifies it by like, oh, but I wasn't really disconnecting. I just, I thought it's what would bring him back. And it's like, okay, well, it, it didn't. <laughs> like, is that how a, how, how a mother would normally behave? Disconnect to bring them back? Now, I do know that, let's take kind a family word. like work. attaching with love. <laughs> <laughs> but I, like, I, I'm aware of other scenarios where sometimes, you know, particularly when there's serious addiction, Involved. Well, that's what I was just going to be about to say, like they're equating it to that, you know, but it's not. No, it's not because also, well, because in the addiction and I'm thinking of a particular example that I have firsthand knowledge of where it's like the person ends up creating such destruction and havoc and chaos in the family that if there's a disconnection, it's almost out of self-preservation. Like we have no choice. We can't let you continue to destroy everything. It's putting your mask on first. You know? Yeah. In Scientology, it's just because, oh, this person won't stop saying bad things about Scientology. Do you, uh, right? But, but yeah, they that, view it in the same light in a way. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like they're doing this almost. It's this, true. This noble um, act of, of service and it's kind of self righteous in an extent. It's true. It's true. But at least in the case of, at least in the case of the addict, though, it's like there's still 
love there. And, and also there's no rules against reconnecting. There's that like yeah. in Scientology, you can justify it to yourself why you agreed to go along with the disconnection, but you're also not allowed to change your mind unless you leave Scientology. So of course you're rationalizing it. You don't have a fucking choice. Mm -hmm. <sighs> um, so then you, you met your wife. This was out and was she in Philly or was you were, where you were out in LA? No. So there was that whole two year period that I said we were in LA, not doing anything in Scientology. So when I said I went back, I literally went back to Philadelphia. Okay. So then I finished my contract in Philly and then I went back to LA, but this time to work in Scientology C organization. And that's where I met my wife. She, she had been born and raised in Scientology and born and raised in Los Angeles, actually. Um, and so she was already working in the C organization there. And that's where I met her. And then it was at that point that you had to go and ask if you could get married. And then they said that you had to cut off your dad, right? That's right. They said, uh, they said it wasn't good enough that you've uh, disconnected from your brother, but your father, who's literally never even been a Scientologist and has never said one negative word, even about Scientology to you ever. Uh, he talks to your brother and you talk to him. And it was because my wife worked in a senior level organization that had higher standards or whatever. And so they're like, yeah, you got to disconnect from your dad. So who delivers that message to you? Like when you go ask for permission, so are you, do you have like an assigned like auditor for periods of time? I mean, for we realize auditor is just for auditing for all the other personnel or ethics related issues. There's an ethics officer and every organization has its own ethics officer okay. who's just literally responsible for everyone in the entire goddamn organization. Mm -hmm. So the answer to your question is it's the ethics officer who basically says this has been disapproved and here's the reason why. And you have to do X, Y, and Z. How long after you're writing your brother up was that? <laughs> So writing my brother, it, this would have been a couple of years after. So then, well, I guess my question was because they knew that you were talking to your dad. So mm -hmm. I would imagine they know that because you're telling your auditor that is like, so why, how did they, you know, when they brought that up as a thing, well, we know that you're still talking to your dad. Like, how would they have that information? Oh yeah. That's just normal. That's normal information for them to have. Like uh, the ethics officer, anytime anyone gets in trouble, for anything or anytime someone's moving on to the next auditing level, it's very common for the ethics officer to have to sit down and review with them everything that's ever been noted in their files as being a potential area of concern. So, so with my brother having been declared a suppressive person, literally one of the first questions I would ever get asked anytime anything ever went wrong is any updates about my brother. And they would have, it would already be noted somewhere that I have other familial connections to my brother. It's just that nobody cared about that until the I was trying to get married to my now wife, again, because she worked in a higher level organization than I did that had a higher uh, standard for what they were willing to tolerate. So you write your, you write your, uh, your dad. No, off. no, I never, I never wrote. No, I never. That's where the story gets like, just kind of silly. I never had to tell him I was disconnecting. I just had to promise the ethics officer that I was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I already at that time only talked to my dad once or twice a year, you know, birthday and Christmas. I was like, what do I really give a shit? Like, it's not 
this doesn't actually change my relationship. What but would, it's funny. What would have happened to you though, if they did find out about that, would you have been sent to like, what do they call that? Like kind of like the jail thing. What's that? The called? R- well, either the RPF or the hole is what you'd be thinking of. Yeah. So like, let's say you had found out about, they had found out that you were still talking to your dad. What, what do you think the repercussions for you would have been? It wouldn't have been major. <laughs> okay. okay. Wouldn't have been major. Cause the whole thing was just a bunch of noise about nothing in the first place. And it's funny because I was just about to say, I don't recall ever not taking a call from my dad or not calling my dad. Like, it's almost like perhaps enough time didn't go on. Oh, this is what happened. My brother died in the car accident so soon after this occurred that I never even had to cross that bridge of not calling my dad during a day I normally would have called or not taking a call during a time I normally would have taken a call. Well, cause then my brother died in a car accident we'll share and that then story. I mean, how, yeah. long, how many years it had been several years since you hadn't spoken to him. Right. Right. I mean, he died less than a year after me joining the Sea Org and I got married a few months after joining the Sea Org. So I joined the Sea Org in August. I got married in March and he was cut off. Like, so he was not at your wedding clearly. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. No. I mean, my mom or my dad wasn't, not even my mom was at my wedding. None none of my wife's parents were even at our wedding. Was anybody of, there? <laughs> a, a, a lot of other Sea Org members and, and a couple LA celebrities or whatever. Um, um, but that's normal. Weddings in the Sea Org are not a, a big deal. Yeah, because family is no big deal, right? <laughs> yeah. A wedding is just something you do because you're not allowed to have sex without being married. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People also get divorced a lot in the Sea Org. Like, I mean, there there are people in their twenties. Are they okay with that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's not a big deal at all. I mean, there are people in their twenties who've been married or divorced two or three times. Would they prefer you to not be married? You think? No, there's no preference one way or the other. To be honest, nobody particularly cares. But they don't really want people in the Sea Org to have children, right? Yeah, you cannot. And that's for the best, honestly. Having kids in the Sea Org is horrible. I mean, that's even worse than my story of growing up in Scientology. Um, so yeah, you can't. And if you do get pregnant in the Sea Org, you're you're de- you're pressured to have an abortion. They're not. They're not. They're definitely pro-choice. <laughs> um. And so yeah. So then you get a call from your dad one night. That's right. And and my brother had died in a car accident that involved. He wasn't the one driving. Um, but the person driving was everyone in the car was drunk. Um, and my brother wasn't buckled and I think he was asleep in the back seat or whatever. And he was ejected. Like he died instantly mm-hmm. from what I understand. And you had to, you had to call your, your mom, right? Wasn't she devastated? Yeah, that was the worst. That was the worst. And honestly, the fact that, um, it's one of the things that makes the relationship today so hard because you'd think after everything that me and my mom have both gone through that nothing could be more important than just having the best relationship possible in present time. And yet that doesn't really seem to be a priority for her. It's, it continues to be what's best for her. And Oh my God, is she insulted in any way? Or has she been slighted in the most minor way and everything? And so, um, and I'm like, you had three sons, you have one left. Conduct yourself accordingly. <laughs> She's clearly you know. very mentally ill. When you say you had three, 
now you only have one. Do you mean because your other brother is still in Scientology and she can't have a relationship with him? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he disconnected from her as well. You know, even though he's barely a Scientologist, I don't even know that he is a Scientologist, but his father is. So he, if he had to pick between the father or me and my mom, he, you know, he picked his father. And um, so, but it's like, you, you think there would be some self-reflection, like whatever decisions you've made in life have gotten you to this point where you have one of your three kids left. You think that would just a little bit of self-reflection is warranted for here. It's, it's, and too, there is it's too painful for her. None. Like she, she can't go there, you know, like what that is too fucking painful. Yeah. That's, that's a generous interpretation and it's probably true. <laughs> and it, I mean, it is, I mean, she's, yeah. she's very sick. She's a sick yeah. woman and has yeah. a shitload of trauma that she's never dealt with. I'm sure. Yeah. But that, and that's the irony of it is, you know, she would consider that Scientology is how you handle trauma and she still believes in Scientology and practices auditing. So it's like, then why are you in your situation? Mm-hmm. And I'm in my situation. I have a very good situation in life. <laughs> um, so and then, uh, yeah. So then after that, when, I mean, when did the, cause I heard you share that the light bulb started to, so you ended up leaving the sea org, right? And you went to have That's a normal right. job. And so it was, That's at, right. and it was at that point where you kind of, the, the light started to turn on for you. Gradually. So, you know, I joined the Sea Org in 2002. Uh, we left the Sea Org in 2006. And the, the official reason was because my wife, wife was pregnant and we were not going to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the official reason. The fact is, the reason we were willing to get pregnant is we were fucking done. Donezos. So just like in Philly, I got to the point where I'm like, yeah, I'm not wasting my time just fucking fighting these assholes all day. The exact same thing happened in LA. It was like, you know what? I, I still believe in Scientology, but I'm just fucking sick of fighting people all the time. The Sea Org has a very like, you know, the way L. Ron Hubbard's management uh, system is set up is any bad condition isn't bad. It, any bad condition is only bad because someone is intentionally making it that way, right? Like mm-hmm. if the number of new people coming to a Scientology org goes down for a few weeks, it's not just because it went down. Somebody made it go down. Mm-hmm. So, and realize Scientology is not expanding. It's shrinking. Well, that's, that's why true. I'm surprised that they let people out of the Sea Org. Well, I mean, define let, you know, I mean, but, but my point here is that there is this atmosphere in Scientology organizations and the Sea Organization where it's nonstop finger pointing. There always has to be at a head, a head on a pike. They're always finding for the person who's secretly causing some bad condition. It's never a team just trying to accomplish the goal. It's everyone fighting and, and throwing people under the bus. And it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at 2006, we were like, fuck this. We, we want to, like, do something else. Okay, so we got pregnant. And, yeah, so we were still in Scientology, but we left the Sea Organization, and we moved to Clearwater. Now, that was because her parents are much older than mine, and they're, you know, they were somewhat retired. Um, and Clearwater was just going to be a better place to, uh, have a baby and raise a family. So we came to Clearwater, no other particular reason other than that. Uh, you know, she had family here. My mom was still in Philly, but she's working at the org all the time at that time. So there's no point going to Philly. There's no one there to help us. Right. So we come to Clearwater and 
uh, instantly get a job working at one of these Scientology business consulting groups. Wasn't it like hedge fund shit? That was later on. Okay. <laughs> and so I, so I had a few jobs. Do you even know how to do math? <laughs> so did you ever learn algebra? I, I never learned algebra, but you don't need to know algebra. No, you don't. I know you don't. Did you I mean, uh, I, have a GED? No, no GED. Well, <laughs> nothing. Go you. <laughs> so, you know, I, there was a few different Scientology adjacent jobs that I held. And, and the last, um, so that was in two, starting in 2006. Um, in 2009, I started working for a Scientologist who was a hedge fund, uh, 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 had been a hedge fund manager prior and was now running a research firm that catered to hedge funds. Okay. So from 2009 to 2013, I basically worked for this guy, learned the hedge fund world, learned about the stock market and all that kind of stuff. And I'm a, I'm a quick study. Like, <laughs> yeah, because you took that study course when you were 12. Like, of course you are. <laughs> Unfortunately, because my path is the only path I traveled and because that path didn't include school and because I've been a, a moderate success in, in a few different ways, like I'm, I'm not a huge advocate of making kids think that you have to sit in a classroom and get this thing in order to succeed. Uh -huh. Like this is what I was, I was trying to describe earlier of uh, this concept Scientology. There's a derogatory concept in Scientology called having to have before you can do. Uh, this is a derogatory science. This is an actual phrase that exists in having Scientology. To have before, what is it? Having to have before doing to do H having to have before you can do before you can do. Okay. That this is something that's very often offered up as an as an excuse. You tell you tell someone accomplish X, and they go, "Before I can accomplish X, I have to have A, B, and C." Well, that's considered a derogatory thing in Scientology. So the idea that you can accomplish whatever you need to accomplish or want to accomplish, regardless of whether you quote unquote have everything you actually need to do that or not, okay. is considered okay. a very upscale, competent Scientology way of thinking. Okay. <laughs> And I think there's value to that if it's not me too. If it's not overdone. Like that doesn't mean you can go do surgery without going to medical school. Yeah. Um, I didn't have any fucking podcast experience oh. when I launched this, you know, I exactly. Didn't take a class. So a, a lot of the little things in Scientology are useful when not taken to their absurd extreme. <laughs> and yet Scientology takes everything to the absurd extreme. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> okay. So a, some Scientology jobs, I mean, even that the, the, uh, the hedge fund related job is still in a sense, a Scientology adjacent job. Mm -hmm. Cause I was only hired for that job because of my Scientology experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So from 2006 to 2013, I essentially had a regular job in the regular world, just in Clearwater, where most of the people I know are Scientologists. Were you making a shitload more money then? Then what? What you had in the Sea Org. Oh, well, I mean, the Sea Org, you're making $50 a week. I mean, at the last job that I was working, I was probably making 70 grand a year. I mean, I had made over 100 grand a year at one of the jobs before that, you know. So that's good money. That's good how money. Much of that, but how much of that were you giving back to Scientology? Mm -mm. I, I was... I wasn't giving any money to Scientology. <laughs> Actually, I, yeah, no. I didn't think that that was really allowed. Well, it depends on what you mean. Like, remember, I was always a staff member. I was, as staff members don't pay for, they pay with their time. They don't pay with money. Okay. So when I left staff, I wasn't interested in doing Scientology. Like, it, it's an interesting contradiction. 
kind of like I said, you know, in grade school, I was ashamed to talk about Scientology, but I couldn't tell you why. So but were you still getting, were you still doing auditing and taking courses? No, no, no. I, I was maybe doing the $25 Dianetics course or whatever. Cause I really didn't want to. And the only reason I even agreed to do the thing I did is because they wouldn't fucking leave me alone about it, you know? Um, and so starting to work for Scientology at the age that I did, I, Scientology was just something that I did. It's not even something I valued particularly. It was just what I knew. And even when I was in the C organization and working for Scientology, I never really enjoyed getting auditing. I never wanted it. I never sought it out. In fact, I took steps to avoid getting it whenever I could. So I sure as fuck wasn't going to pay somebody for something I didn't even want. Um, so I was just kind of, it was just the status quo. I was in good standing. Everyone I knew was a Scientologist. My wife and her family are Scientologists. My mom's a Scientologist. There was never any part of me that wanted to not be a Scientologist. I just had no particular interest in doing Scientology. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, it does. But you've also made comments about how, like, you know, cutting off your brother and all that stuff that you, you that you had bought into everything. That's right. So, so there were aspects of the Scientology story about existence that I fully bought into. And yet somehow, I mean, this is where, you know, a lot of cognitive dissonance kind of comes into play. Like I bought into the story that we're all trillions of years old and earth is a prison planet and we all suffer from amnesia lifetime to lifetime and only Scientology auditing can fix that. Yeah. So you're, you're buying into like the greater purpose and the greater message, yeah. you know, but not necessarily like into, you didn't feel like you have to do all the little nitty gritty stuff in order to, yeah, I understand. Well, and I had no interest in even doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I still believed that without doing those steps, see, I mentioned, I wonder if this is truly cognitive dissonance or if it's something else. I believed you had to do those steps in order to get out of the trap. I just had no interest in doing those steps. <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy. Do you want to know why I had no interest? Because this does touch on the childhood trauma. I knew from all my experience training auditors that you had to talk about all of this secret, private, embarrassing shit in order to get through the steps. And I was so not interested in doing that, I was willing to just not do the steps. Because as a child, I would sit down and look at all of the things you're expected to discuss in auditing sessions. And I was like, no thanks, not doing any of that. I guess I'll just be doomed to eternity of amnesia and that's okay with me, but how I'll help everyone else get through it. <laughs> how many hours though of auditing have you had done on yourself? Oh, probably hundreds or thousands, just di different types of auditing, you know, not what you would call bridge auditing. Like, that's you know how I said, moving up the ladder. Yeah. Like, you know, how I said before, there's the auditor training courses and then there's all the cutesy little side courses that Scientology has extrapolated from that to sell mm -hmm. to people. The same is true for auditing. There's a hundred different fucking auditing things that you can do, but there's only certain auditing things that get you up the bridge. I've done a lot of the side auditing stuff. Okay. So you, so you never got to the alien level? Never. Didn't learn about that until after I'd left Scientology. Oh, wow. <laughs> what is it? Xenu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Xenu and the body thetans. <laughs> okay. So you're working there. You're making money. And then was it the article in the newspaper that came out? 
That's right. 2009, Tampa Bay Times runs a series of articles called The Truth Rundown, where they are interviewing uh, some Scientology, senior level Scientology managers who had left Scientology and were now you speaking know them? out. I knew them as celebrities, like they're, you know, they're like Scientology celebrities. These guys address all Scientologists four or five times a year at these major events. I never knew them personally. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know these people had left Scientology. Uh, you, you know, I never, I never knew these people weren't still on their posts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. much less that they had left Scientology. And my whole upbringing in, Sci- in Scientology, I had always thought international management was like this utopia where everything was fucking perfect and great because there weren't a bunch of whiny ass public complaining about this and that. And there weren't a lot of demands on your time because there's no one to even deliver to. There's, you know, it's, it's a management organization. It's not mm-hmm. a delivery organization where I'd always worked. And to, uh, and I'd always had this sort of um, kind of structure in my mind where any negative stuff that I would see locally, I assumed it was a reflection of being too far away from international management. Hmm. Um, and that the closer you got to management, the better things would be. And around the time that I was reading this article is when it dawned on me that what I was seeing was the trickle-down effect. And a lot of the things I was seeing wrong locally and bad locally was a trickle-down effect from management. It, it wasn't a result of being too far from management. Mm-hmm. That the closer you got to management, the worse it was. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, was a real mind fuck. That's when you start to reevaluate everything. And then you start to evaluate. And then, and then you evaluate different things like, like peeling an onion. You, don't, you, know, you start looking at different things level by level, layer by layer. Yeah. You have to, I mean, it's like, un, that's all you knew. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, coming to terms with, you know, everything that you've known your whole life and what you've believed and finally having the, you know, the curtain open up. Yeah. 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 And so in a sense, the, the way I've described it, where I sort of believed in the overarching story of Scientology, but didn't want to do the work to get up to the top. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In a sense, the fact that I had somewhat of that arm's length personal relationships to the bridge mm-hmm. made the unraveling process easier for me than it has been for many others. Because I was never really, really invested in going up the bridge. It was just something that I put up there as something I knew needed to be done at some point in time. I didn't spend wow. hundreds of thousands of dollars going up the bridge like other people did. I didn't, wow. you know, I didn't convince myself every step of the bridge that something magical was happening to me because I was never going up the bridge. I never had to worry about that. I was, I was engaged in what even what Scientology calls. I was on the business side of the e-meter. I was not on the help me. I need to be spiritually improved side of the e-meter. So when I finally found out that everything Scientologists have been told about L. Ron Hubbard leaving behind these upper OT levels that are waiting to be released and that that was all bullshit. For me, it was actually a relief. It wasn't, it wasn't a heartbreak. It was a relief. I was like, oh my God, that my belief in those upper unreleased OT levels was the only thing holding this entire thing together. I was, it was almost like, oh, thank God. Someone should have told me that a long time ago. I'm ready to move on. Like, even though a lot of my, you know, uh, early adulthood and adolescence was some people could say, oh, it was wasted. 
I go, yeah, but it's not like I wasted my adulthood. I mean, look, I was 26 years old by the, when I, you know, left the Sea Org and had kids. Mm -hmm. So that's still a relatively early age to have kids. Mm -hmm. And I'm out in the regular world, own a home, cars, job, wife, kids. I've had a relatively normal adulthood from the age of 26 on. I don't have any sense of having wasted my life. Thank God. Cause I think that's what kills a lot of people when they find out Scientology is full of shit. Uh -huh. They're like, I wasted my whole fucking life. Uh -huh. And even though my childhood was spent in a way it probably should not have been, I still don't have a sense that it was wasted. And maybe that's just, a, you know, maybe that's just something I don't want to come to terms with. Cause then I would feel really bad about it, but it's like, uh, I did not have an existential crisis coming out of Scientology. And I know that a lot of people do. Like yeah, I know Chris Shelton, Chris Shelton um, and Chris and I are friends. We were in the Sea Org together. You might be familiar with him if you've been looking at a lot of online stuff, right? Uh -huh. So Chris Shelton has had a much harder time coming out of Scientology because in some ways he was so much more invested in it emotionally and spiritually than I was. He truly believed certain aspects of it in a way that I never did. Right. Which is funny because look at everything I did in the name of the belief. And yet he was so much more bought in to every aspect of it than I was. And so was that because he had gone like kind of gone up more the ladder? I think he probably had, but he also, and, and, but I don't know whether that explains all of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like there were parts of Scientology, even that I was studying that I would go, well, that's obviously bullshit, but I would throw it to the side and it didn't bother me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas, and I'm, I'm not picking on Chris here. I'm just using it as an example where his path out was much harder. And, and he talks about that. Whereas I never had that existential crisis aspect to it. I'm not even saying that as a positive thing or a negative thing. It's just what is. Because some people go, oh, you seem so remarkably well-adjusted. And I go, well, I don't know. How should I seem? Yeah. I mean, fingers crossed, you know, like you could be well-adjusted or like who knows what could happen to you in a year or two. You might have a whole fucking mouth. It just hasn't come to the surface yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, but what I was thinking about when we were talking about your childhood and um it's like, that's not wasted time because, you know, it is through that experience and what you learned that now you're able to do what you do, you know, like, like helping other people and helping to get them out of this, you know, like that because of your gift of communication, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if anything, um, it sort of gives me an idea like, like I said earlier, I don't have anything to compare my childhood to, except now I have my kids' childhoods to compare it to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, seeing them and their experience in their life and what they're doing at their age is, is one of the things that really brings home how fucked up our experience was. Mm. You know, my daughters, they're all about to turn uh, basically 16, 14, and 12. They're all almost exactly two years apart. And it's like, you know, when my oldest daughter turned 15, I'm thinking to myself, mm. I was already living in the world by myself at this age. Yeah. And I, I couldn't even, <laughs> and I couldn't even imagine my daughter. And by the way, and these girls are smart and they're advanced in school. They're advanced for their age and all that stuff. And I go, and I still couldn't imagine my oldest daughter living in a world where she had to, she woke up every morning and was on her own. Mm. 
whether she felt good about it or not. It was like, and that's where you go. You almost don't know what you don't know. You, you mentioned there's no concept of family. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know that I was, had no concept of family until my kids grow up and I see the family that they have. So that is something really common that I talk about in my podcast is how a lot of the times people's repressed, um, you know, childhood trauma will come to the surface when you have a kid and you realize, you know, what you didn't get and what you didn't receive. Yeah, totally. And I'll tell you that one of the things almost like not, not lessons that I've passed on, but the opposite is I go out of my way to not make my kids feel like anything they've done wrong is like horribly, horribly bad because in Scientology, there's just this thing that every little thing is such a big fucking deal. And the amount of, I think, trauma that gets instilled, not from what you did, but, but how you've made to, how you're made to feel regarding what you did is the trauma shame (laughs) yes it's it's shame and so one thing i really um i say put a lot of attention on but it's also in some ways not i I put attention on it by not putting attention on it just not making them feel that anything they've done even if it's like even if they feel terrible about it making them feel it's not the end of the fucking world uh calm down you're fine you're embarrassed, you know, if, if like if, if, if I see that they are very embarrassed or shamed about something, I go out of my way to make them understand that's not necessary. No one's going to give a shit about this a year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. It's just not a big deal. Whereas for me, I feel so much of my childhood was the opposite. This will be a huge deal if, X, if this happens. Oh, that'll be horrible. That'll be the end of the world. In Scientology, everything's just such a big fucking deal all the time, you know? <laughs> And the more, the more kids think that something's going to be a huge deal if it gets found out about, then the more they try to depress. Keep it exactly, yeah. and then that affects relationships and all that kind of stuff. So, um, how did it's your just, wife cope? Like how? So you then you officially left what in twenty fourteen? Um, officially in twenty fourteen, yeah. And so how how was this? How was the experience for your? wife like her coming to terms with this stuff too it's all been very difficult in that regard do you feel like it's impacted her more oh i'd say it's impacted us significantly i'm just saying the whole thing has been extremely difficult and add on top of that um just a whole lot of uh scientology repression (laughs) i mean and then add my fucking mom on top of it. And then the fact that she lost, she essentially lost. I mean, depending yeah, her on how parents, you right? And I realize I'm about to oversimplify it in an unfair way, mm-hmm. but she essentially lost her parents because of um, dominoes my mom put into motion. And, you know, if my mom really wanted to do what was best for everyone, she could have just herself bowed out and let everyone else make their own decisions. Now I say this, Look, I I would never I in I, in some ways I never would have had wished that this everything had gone any way other than how it did because I don't know how it could have ever gone any way other than how it did. But if my mom wanted to be empathetic, she could at least acknowledge that sure, technically everyone's better off now than they were before. 
Um, but that happened against, that didn't really happen like with the agreement of everyone involved. Uh-huh. And you put dominoes into motion um, that caused my wife to lose her entire family. And you could at least acknowledge that that is the case, even if you think you did us all a big favor. You could at least acknowledge that that is one version of viewing what occurred. And even though we're all better off, that doesn't necessarily take the sting out of it, especially since you didn't really consult everybody when you decided- Wait, so what happened? I'm confused. So your mom- My mom basically did something that she knew was going to get her declared. And that she knew that once she got declared- Or herself? Herself declared. Okay. Knowing that I would either have to disconnect from her or get declared myself. Oh, okay. So you weren't, it wasn't you making a decision, you were forced into it. Well, my decision was that I was not going to disconnect from my mom, but I was going to lie to everyone about it so that I wouldn't also get declared and kicked out. And so out. then she ratted you out? No, eventually, no, eventually I got ratted out. But Every, but it's not like my mom ever came to me and said, you know, I understand you, sh- you need to do what's best for you. I've made my decision for what's best for me. If you have to disconnect from me, I understand, you know, to save your family and your wife's family and everything. If you have to disconnect from me, I understand and I- I'm at peace with it and I've come to terms with it because we all have to do what's best for each one of us. No, 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 that's not how I went. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, even to this level, even to this level. Where even this level where she said, if you have to tell them you've disconnected from me, that's what you should do. And then that's what I did. And then she lost her fucking shit that I, that's what I did, that I didn't like stand up and fight for her and say, I will never disconnect from my mom. I was like, mom, I did exactly what you told me you'd be okay with, which is lying to them about it so that I could keep my job and my wife and my wife's family. And she just lost her shit. And so that's where you go, well, hold on. So, so you started down this path, but you were prepared to drag everyone down with you regardless of how they felt about it. Well, that's not very honest, is it? I mean, that's not very virtuous. Okay. But realize I'm just pointing this out because that's one way the story can be viewed. I never would have disconnected from my mother and, and I did lie about it, but I guess I wish it would have it would, it would have made everything much easier if she hadn't lost her fucking shit that I was simply doing what I needed to do in order to keep my life together the way that it was. You follow? Okay. So then so then eventually I get declared. Is there any room um, for you to hold the space for like if she wasn't doing that in, to intentionally harm you, but that she's oh, no, just I don't like think she's she just was. a sick person? Oh, for sure. For sure. So then what happens though, is I eventually, the, the church eventually is like, we're not going to keep letting this asshole trick us. We, we know he's not going to disconnect from his mom. So he's out. So then they go to my wife and then they go, well, your husband's out. So you can either divorce him or you're out as well. And you know, the way, you know, Scientologists aren't very sentimental. So my wife doesn't, the argument that she makes to them isn't even yeah, that's, I'm in love with my husband. So that's not going to work. She literally has to like sketch it out for them. Like, let me paint a picture for you. We have three kids. They all love their father. If I divorce Aaron now, I'm still connected to him through the kids until our kids are 18. So I still can't do Scientology until they're 18 anyway. And that's in like 14 years. (laughs) Okay. Then when the kids are 18, 
they're not going to disconnect from their father because our kids aren't even Scientologists and they love their father. So if they have to pick between him or me, they're going to pick the one who's not telling them they have to pick. <laughs> and so then I will have lost my husband and my kids. And for what? So she basically lays out this thing to them, essentially saying, yeah, that's not going to work for me. So then they go, okay, you're out. And then they go to her parents. Okay, well, you've got to disconnect from your daughter and your three granddaughters. Uh, or you guys are out. Uh, but they have two other daughters and a son. That are in. So that's like one, one uh, kid versus three kids that you'd lose. Exactly. And that's what I mean when I talk about Scientology destroying families. Is like, because really in this equation, her parents are the ones who really had no choice. They were going to lose people no matter what. Now, you know, so Heather, you know, if she divorced me, she would have at least kept her kids, uh -huh. right? So she had a choice. Um, her parents really had no choice. As far as losing children, her parents had no choice. They were going to lose children one way or the other and, and grandchildren, lots of grandchildren. And that's just where you're like, nothing is worth that. Well, I mean, maybe there's something out there that's worth that. But, you know, my, my problem with Scientology is that they're just being fucking lied to every single day for no greater purpose than to separate them from their money. Wow. And I, I know Scientologists really believe it. So someone would be like, well, they're not just being lied to, to separate them from their money, whatever. It's really why I do what I do on YouTube is like, if anything can get people to realize that, Hey, maybe there's something out there that's worth giving up your family, but it ain't Scientology. <laughs> it ain't Scientology. And if me putting out, you know, entertaining and informative videos on YouTube helps people in Scientology come to that conclusion, then that's, that's my public service. And the good news is it, it does work. It has been working, you know, because I'm also work associated with the Aftermath Foundation. Well, that's what I, I want to ask about that too. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I have the privilege and the luxury of hearing from people who are leaving Scientology what it was that got them to wake up. And in many cases, my videos are part of that equation. Mm. I go, yeah, you just seem really, you know, you seem so fair and, you know, you're not hateful and you know what the, you clearly know what you're talking about and everything you say resonates with me. And it's not just my videos, but me and Chris Shelton are really the ones out there putting out videos in the former Scientology world. Um, and it's one of the reasons I put out so many videos. <laughs> I just want people who are coming out of Scientology or starting to question things to be able to stumble online and find a former Scientologist talking about the subject in a way that they can relate to and doesn't just sound hypercritical and hyperbolic and exaggerated. So I like to throw in jokes and be funny and tease Miscavige and whatnot. But everything I say about Scientology is 100% accurate and fair uh, and, and balanced. And, and I think that comes through. So if anything, all the time I spent in my younger years, really understanding the subject of Scientology, uh, one thing you could, it, you can say it's helped me by enabling me to talk about the subject in a way that current well, that, Yeah, that's know. what I was going to say is that, <laughs> that, well, that's the gift of your childhood is what, what I was trying to say. But so it's, it's the exact same thing for me. Um, I have a gift of being able to communicate um, on some really heavy topics, but I'm able to like bring in laughter and self-mockery. And that's like the special sauce is when you can, you know, talk about some serious shit, you know, and also bring in some humor. You're not making light of things, but 
you know, that people resonate with that. Yeah. It's, it's less threatening. Totally. Totally. Well, and you do have, you do have that same thing. <laughs> and it, it's funny, like uh, when I do hear something like, oh, I don't, you know, you seem so well adjusted. I, there's a part of that that almost goes like, is that supposed to be something I'm supposed to apologize for? Cause I'm never quite sure how to take it. Like you say, thank you. That's it. Well, no, no, I, no. I mean, I, I, I mean, I know it's intended as a, as a compliment, but I think in some circles, it, it, it might also be perceived as, geez, I guess it just might, must not have been that bad for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyhow, I, I mean, I, I always say thank you. Thank you is the right answer. But, um, but it's not like it's not like I've done any extra work. On well, yeah, that's what I was gonna to say to too. This point. So no Do you know therapy, what I mean? like there hasn't nope. been therapy. Wow. Well, hopefully you're just special, but you know, and all, but hopefully not in ten years. You're just gonna really fucking have to have a psychotic <laughs> break. Like <laughs> you're well adjusted now, but you're about to go fucking nuts in about a few years. So just wait. Let's give it a few more years. That's what you should say when they say, "Wow, you're so well adjusted." You'd be like, "Uh, give me a few years before you say that." <laughs> You know, there's something, one thought I have on this. And again, it's one of these things where it's like, the only path I know is the one I took. So how, I, in some ways, okay, here's my point. As we were going through all of this, uh, you know, when I got fired from my last Scientology or laid off because uh-huh. I was getting kicked out of Scientology, uh-huh. I was fortunate enough to be able to go into business for myself because I'd already spent, just spent five years learning all about the hedge fund industry, working for some of the world's most famous hedge fund managers, making good contacts. I was fortunate enough to almost overnight start making maybe five times the money I was making previous. And I'm mentioning that because I say, uh, you know, me appearing well-adjusted and everything. I wonder just how bad and dirty and gritty things could have gotten if all of the emotional stresses that we were under were compounded by money issues. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's also the problem too, right? Is a lot of people leave and they have no skills and like no way to get a job. Right. That's right. Everything is worse when you add money stresses to the situation. So what is the aftermath doing? Like, as far as, you know, what's being done for those people? Like, let's say somebody wants to leave, but they literally have, don't even have like a dollar to their name. Like what are, what's going, you know, are there like almost like sheltering type places? Or is, do they, well, help they don't need shelters. The- we help them get into their own apartments. I mean, okay. uh, I'm, we have uh, the, the easy answer to the question is, what do you do? What do you guys do is literally anything that's needed. Do you help so, people find jobs and stuff? Help them find jobs, get them an apartment, get them a car, get them anywhere they want to go, whether that's home or away from home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we've helped people who have literally never known anything other than the Sea Org. We've helped elderly people. We've helped people in their 20s, 30s, 70s. We've helped people who've been in the Sea Org for 40 years. We've helped people leave who have family, but they didn't want to go to them. We've helped people leave who have no family. Um, and we basically do whatever they want, however they want it done. Um, the, the point is it's done on their terms, not our terms. No are strings. Mike, are Mike no and Leah involved in that? Mike is on, is on our board. Our board. Um, 
Leah is not on the board, but she supports the foundation. Um, so we have been able to accomplish everything we hoped we'd be able to and more. Like I can't, it, it's been such a thrill and a pleasure to see it roll out the way we'd hoped it would. One of the biggest questions early on was, how's anyone in the CERG ever going to find out about the Aftermath Foundation? They, how are they going to know your help even exists? <laughs> uh-huh. In the beginning, people were finding out through family members who were hearing it from friends, like the CERG members, just like I was in touch with my dad and my dad was in touch with my brother. Well, most of these CERG members are in touch with someone in the outside world. Well, that someone's in touch with the internet. <laughs> and anytime anyone pops up on the internet about anything to do with Scientology or needing help, we've gotten to a point now where they go, contact the Aftermath Foundation. <laughs> when was it launched? Uh, five years ago, 2017. I think that's about, that. that's ballpark right. Not everyone who leaves Scientology needs the help that the Aftermath Foundation exists to provide. So specifically, we say that the foundation is here to provide a support system and safety net for those who simply don't have it elsewhere. You know, if someone, someone can be in Scientology and maybe they already have a successful career uh, and they just want to drift away from Scientology and they don't want to speak out publicly and whatever, they can do that. It's not actually that hard to leave Scientology. Uh, It's really the people who have been working for the organization from a young age who, um, you know, when these, and and let's say most of their family members are in Scientology, this person gets to a point where they want to leave and they leave, they have nothing, Exactly. nothing. Well, and I, I mean, Catherine Olson is an example of someone the foundation helped recently. I did an interview with her on my channel. She was 40 years old by the time she left. She didn't have a driver's license. She didn't know how to drive. (laughs) I mean, that's the lack of world experience that someone can have. So, um, Yeah. So we're doing the Lord's work. Yeah. Well, we can pick someone up no matter where they are. We can get them to an airport, get them a plane ticket, get them where they, to a city they want to get to. Um, We can either put them up in a hotel until they find an apartment. Um, We help them get jobs, help them get transportation, the whole shebang. I mean, the biggest stories, the biggest success stories that that's not a fair characterization. Um, the most incredible stories we have to tell are the ones that have not yet been told. <laughs> and I can't wait uh, for the day that those stories can be told. So I know um, the, the masters, there's the, the Masterson trial, but is there anything going on like right now that, you know, like legally or behind the scenes that could end up being pretty impactful? I would say that behind the scenes, there are things going on that I believe will result in felony prosecutions for Scientology as an organization that will open the door to the IRS reviewing and revoking Scientology's tax-exempt status. That is what, I mean, when I say that, I don't just believe it. I know things that are going on, and those are the consequences I believe are attached to these things. How long do you think that'll be, like in the next five years? Well, let's keep in mind that it has taken five years just for Danny Masterson's trial to occur after charges were filed. <laughs> so that's why once you start to say how long it should take, you're in a complete yeah, yeah, yeah. guessing I- game. So even if it takes 15 or 20 years, I, I believe we'll see prosec- I believe we'll see charges brought within 
three years. And by the way, that's, that's a cynical time frame. Optimistically, a year. I believe we'll see charges brought within one to three years. Now, realize that at that point, Scientology is fighting for its very life. So every tactic will be used, every delay tactic, um, every appeal. E e e so the question is, how long can Scientology drag it out? I don't know. I mean, you have Laura D. Crescenzo as a former Sea Org member whose lawsuit dragged out for 10 years. And then the day before they were finally scheduled to go to court, Scientology uh, settled. settled. Yeah. So, and that's in a civil case. So however long Scientology can drag it out is how long it will take. And I don't know what that is, but. But what about money though? Cause I would think that like, they obviously have these like assets and property, but I would think that they're, you know, losing money. I would think, right. Well, no, keep in mind, they don't have any operating costs other than food, electricity, and water. So the reason they're not losing money is they don't pay property taxes and they don't pay income taxes. So it doesn't cost them anything to keep the doors open other than electricity and water. Because remember, they don't have to pay their staff anything. Uh, the SEER members are already paid almost nothing. And the other staff members are paid like a tiny percentage of the adjusted revenue each week. Like if there's no revenue, there's no payroll. So, I mean, worst case apocalyptic, apocalyptic scenario is they just close the doors and don't have any staff in there and it doesn't cost them anything to stay in business. Maybe a hundred dollars a month for the standard water bill. I don't know, but okay. Wow. But that's why the tax exemption is uh, revoking. The tax exemption is such a big deal because the moment you do that, all of a sudden they pay taxes on all of these hugely expensive properties that they own. Right. So all of a sudden they start paying property taxes. Um, and all of a sudden you've taken away the incentive that Scientologists have to make these big donations to Scientology. No one's given Scientology a million bucks if it's not tax deductible. Are there still many members that are donating some serious cash? Well, there's about 30,000 members, 25,000 to 30,000 worldwide. There's maybe, let's say a thousand, maybe a thousand of them uh, would be considered wealthy. Like five or 6,000 of them are literally just staff or Sea Org members. Uh -huh. Maybe, maybe ten, and like there's probably 5,000 Sea Org members in the world. So just think of that. One out of every six Scientologists in the world is a Sea Org member. <laughs> it's fucking insane. <clears throat> so, but your question was how many are giving? Uh, I don't know. How much does it take? When, when you have, I did a video last week, this week on my channel, a guy named Tom Cummins, local Clearwater businessman. He's given Scientology 50 million bucks just for their real estate projects. Wow. He's probably given him over a hundred million total. You got a Scientologist named Bob Duggan. He's a billionaire. Oh, good old Bob Duggan. <laughs> he's, he's the only billionaire Scientologist. Okay. He's probably given Scientology over $400 million. Is he still kicking it? Oh, yeah. He's not a super old guy. He's probably not even 70. Maybe he's 70. Good old Bob. Um, and then, you, of course, you got Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, no one knows how much money Tom Cruise has really given to Scientology. Is Travolta I mean, still involved? Yep. Travolta is still involved. Um, First D. Alley is. Nancy Cartwright is the voice of Bart Simpson. I think she's like low key because uh, she's very 
Nancy Cartwright's been Bart Simpson's voice for the last 30 or 40 years. She is insanely wealthy and she gives most of her money to Scientology. Royalties, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, and so you've got, you've got a lot of Scientologists who've given like a million, oh. two million, two and a half million or whatever. So, and, and it doesn't cost. So the, they have continued to make more and more money each year or, or, you know, stuff away more and more money, even though their membership has been dwindling. Mm -hmm. The moment you take away their tax exemption, mm -hmm. now the dollar figures start dwindling every year. So what have you got any um, intel on when they were saying that Jay, Jada and Will were maybe involved in Scientology? Do you know mm -hmm. anything about that? Were yeah, they I got a great video on my channel about that okay I'll watch they that. both i mean it just comes down to the fact that they both were and now they're not anymore okay. <laughs> you would think that now that they're out they would just be honest about having been in but now they're still fucking lying about it i'm just a student of world religion jada wasn't just a scientologist she got a lot of other people into scientology who are still in scientology mm -hmm. jada was in it more than will but will was the one that was really tight with tom Remember, there's all this weirdness around 2007. All of a sudden, Tom and Will Smith were these public best friends. You know, Will would talk about Tom in every fucking interview. It was really weird. Well, that's when Tom, that's when Will and Jada were getting into Scientology. And they were in. And they were in. I lay it all out. I've got like a, uh, oh, you know, the, the where I did the video is uh, Jada had Leah Remini come on her Red Table Talk interview program. And that was essentially Jada's uh, public way yeah, of denouncements of it that she was no longer in Scientology. Yeah. Now in the interview, she said she'd never really been a Scientologist, but yeah. once, yeah. once Jada brought Leah Remini onto her program, that was essentially a the signal nail in the coffin. Yeah. Yeah. That was a signal to everyone over in camp Scientology that it's officially over. Well, this has been the shit. This is my fucking dream come true. <laughs> I love talking about this shit. I wanted to talk to a Scientologist for fucking ever. I love me some cults. Do you get sick of talking about it? I don't. <laughs> I don't know why either. I don't. I find it so entertaining to talk about. Yeah, me fucking too. <laughs> it's great. So, um, well, so then where, where, well, I'll put all your shit in the show notes, but aftermath, you got your YouTube channel. I'll make sure to give them the, um, your website with your, you know, the website of your name, URL. Oh, the AaronSmithLevin.com. Yeah, I'll make sure I'll put that one. Oh, in the yeah, show yeah, yeah. So sure. people always ask me, you know, does Scientology still harass you? And it's kind of like, well, they harass me every day with that fucking website they have up uh, parking on my name. One of these days, I'm just waiting for some lawyer to volunteer to help me get that thing back because I, I really don't care. And even if even if we take the website down from AaronSmithLevin.com, they'll just put it up under something else, right? But it, it would be nice to have my own. It would be nice to have my own name back. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been rad yeah thank you you can check out anytime you like but you can well that wraps up today's episode as always you're welcome i want to hear y'all's feedback i could have talked to him for for hours i've always wanted to walk into a scientology building and see what the hell is going on in there but i'm afraid like if i walked in then maybe i don't know they would like stick me with a tranquilizer and lock me in a room and I'd be done so. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I loved that conversation. Um, so yeah, I don't really have anything else to tell you. 
except that I will see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's gonna be super raw, super vulnerable, super excited. Piotta here. It's gonna be a good day. I promise.